Good afternoon and welcome. My name is Marilyn Shannon, and we are here at the Breaking Free Show. And as always, I'm so delighted to have each and every one of you join us each and every week. So thank you so much for being here. We have a wonderful show in store for you today. I'm really excited. It's going to bring me back not only to, from the, to the present, but into my past as well. So I'm really excited about that. Please feel free at, at any time during the show when, you, when the moment moves you, when the spark moves you, to please call in. You are welcome to do that, 919-518-9773. You can also chat with us if you like. We have a beautiful chat window. Just put your name in the little box there and hit send or add, whatever it says, and you will join us as well. There's always lots of information and things going on there. And if you are by a computer and you don't have access to a phone, you are more than welcome to join us on Skype at computers, that's plural, the number 2K voice during the show as well. And we'd love to have you, so please feel free. So let me say good morning or good afternoon to Amnon, our producer. Good morning, good after, good afternoon, actually. Yeah. Here it's good afternoon. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm just fine. How are you? I'm doing good. Did you enjoy any of the weather this weekend? I've enjoyed all the weather. Okay, good. I, enjoy, I don't care if it's raining, I'm going to enjoy it. No, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. We're, we were very fortunate to have had yep. some beautiful weather, yes, right? absolutely. Sunny and bright. I hope it's beautiful wherever you are. But wherever you are, whatever it is, enjoy it to the max, to the best that you can. And before we go on and before I introduce my guest to you, could you put up that first little slide there? Okay. I put this up each and every week so that you all know that you are invited to call in. This is your license to call in anytime you like during our show. This is your show. We do this for you. So please feel free at any time you want to share what's on your mind, and uh, it's really important. So here we go. We're going to go on with our show, and I'm really excited about this one. So today our guest is Andrea Lankford, and she is a ranger, a former park ranger. I don't know if you would even call her a former park ranger because I think once it's in you, it's in you, period. And she's written this terrific book called Ranger Confidential where she shares about what it's like about being in a park. Yosemite, Grand Canyon, Zion, and I've been to all three of them. Can you believe that? Uh, I haven't seen yesterday's movies, but but I've been to the parks. So we're going to get into the story, but it's really very cool, and it's a great book. And I would highly recommend it. I have not had a chance to finish it yet, but I'm going to tell you something. It's so good, and it's such a great read. I'm hooked that I'm going to read it because the stories are just incredible. So without further ado, let me introduce Andrea to you. Welcome, Andrea. Hi, Marilyn. Thanks for having me. Oh, Andrea, it's a pleasure. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you. And We had a great talk before the show, so we're going to bring it all in and and talk... uh, Talk again. So, so tell a little bit, just you know, a little bit about your history and who you are, so that our uh, audience will get a good feel for you. Sure. I was born in Tennessee. I've always been a tomboy, and I've always been—I just love the outdoors and I love hiking. So I decided to get a degree in forestry, and that led me to a career with the National Park Service, which was a dream job. I couldn't see myself doing anything but that. But after 12 years of it, I saw the reality, and eventually, as the book tells, I 
decided to quit and I left after 12 years with the National Park Service and did some adventuring and then wrote about my experience in Ranger Confidential. And you're one of the only women that have done this. How many women are there? Well, there, there's a fair amount of women with the Park Service, but I was a law enforcement search and rescue ranger, and when I went to work at Yosemite Valley, they, you know, this was a very macho part of the Park Service system in Yosemite Valley, real busy area. They do a lot of an arrest, a lot of body recoveries and rescues. So I was told I was a test case to see if women could handle working Yosemite Valley. I was one of the only, I was the only permanent female ranger on the shift. Wow. So you started with which park? I started in Cape Hatteras, in North Carolina. Yes, North Carolina. And then you progressed to? Then our, you know, going out west was always a dream of mine. So I got a job at Zion National Park in Utah. From there I went to Yosemite. And from Yosemite, I went to Grand Canyon, and as the rangers say, the Grand Canyon chews up park rangers and spits them out, and that's what happened to me there. So can you tell everybody why that is? Why do they say that, and why did that, how did that happen? Well, the Grand Canyon is gorgeous. I love it. It's probably my favorite park, uh, but it's a very busy place. It's a very uh, lethal place, and I was in charge of a backcountry area the inner canyon and then the years I worked there were the deadliest hiking seasons on records on record so I I witnessed uh, it has a lot of it was stressful of course I did a lot of body recoveries uh, got frustrated with the bureaucracy a lot of sleepless nights working all night long so it was just a tough place to work could do you, could it be any different than what it is Actually, it's kind of a happy ending. It's different now. Uh, while I was there, it, the fatalities were so horrible, we started a preventative search and rescue program. And immediately we saw good effects and lives have been saved and continue to be saved because of that program. So I read about the, the um, hoods in the woods. Is that what you're Yeah, hoods in the woods. Yeah, I love that. That was so clever. Isn't that great? Yeah, really great. So what is that? Well, what happened was, you know, we were having this, this we had uh, eight hiker deaths, a really hot summer, and I was desperate. And I got offered to, someone offered to volunteer for me and, with their kids. It's uh, uh, Dave, David Denali, and he had this youth group of disadvantaged uh, kids. Some of them had, you know, they were juvenile delinquents, some of them. And I was desperate. I said, come, can you come tomorrow? And they came up, and I put them on the trail. Uh, and I was nervous about it. You know, would they get hurt, or would they hurt somebody, or do the wrong thing? But they were wonderful. They rescued two people the first day. And they were kind of our uh, spearhead group of how we would use volunteers in the future to help us do preventative search and rescue. So why was it that group that was chosen? Because they were they they were the ones that offered, you know. They said we we can come volunteer. It was right when everything was happening, you know. And I said, come, we want you tomorrow. They were just it was timing. I would imagine they uh, it gave them such a purpose. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Some of those kids those kids did awesome. Some of them went into the military afterwards. Uh, they we used them for many years after that. 
and one of the leaders of the group, he wasn't, he was a college graduate, Kale Schaefer, ended up being the first preventative search and rescue ranger that I hired. Yeah, it was just, I loved the whole idea because, I, I mean, it's, it's a win-win for everybody when you think about it. It was. It was a really, you know, the Ranger Confidential has some dark stories, but that was one of the happy endings in the book yeah. was the PSAR program at Grand Canyon. Yeah. I'm real proud of it. Yeah. You know, I was, um, when I was six, 16 or 17, I went on a team tour uh, down the, to the Grand Canyon, and I will never forget that experience as long as I live. I mean, we were going, we didn't hike, we went on mules. And it was, if I remember correctly, it was three hours down and four hours up. And we got, we didn't go all the way down to where the hotel is. I think we went to one level. Maybe you can tell me where we went because I don't remember. And the one thing they told us is don't let the mules eat the grass. I don't know <laughs> if they were being funny or serious. Right. But my mule, mule did not want to listen to a thing I told it. I mean, sure. every chance that mule had, it said, was over the, the over the rock. And, I mean, I was, like, over the rock. But I was telling Andrea back then I didn't have a fear of heights. I mean, I would do anything. I didn't care. And I remember um, hugging the canyon wall so much. The path was so narrow. And you had had hikers coming on the same path as me and my mule, and so I ripped my shoes. Wow. I remember, um, you know, I had my camera hooked to my belt, and I had was wearing a hat because of this, you know, and my... You sure? Yeah, and I was up and down so much that my camera opened up. I lost my film. I mean, oh. it was quite the trip, and I remember how I felt when I got off the mule. I mean, my legs were, like, spread out. You know, they couldn't, they, I couldn't get them together because they were, like, so <laughs> painful. But it was one of the most amazing experiences in my life. So, yeah, it was great for me yes. on my side. Yeah, so I have to ask you a question. Did you yeah. get a butt blister? You know, I probably did, but my butt was so numb I wouldn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember, though, I, we were, like, I was on this... In, like on this team tour. So I remember we had different, you know, we were different levels. In other words, you know, one group would leave first and the next group would get on the mule. So we were like all the way down, you know, and I remember looking up and yelling to my friends up on the top, oh my God, you can't believe this. And then coming down, they were like, oh my God, wait till you see this. I mean, it was amazing. Yeah. Do they still uh, do that? Oh yeah, no, no, they, the mule trips are, are still go on. It's really one of the safer ways you know, to go down in the canyon is on a mule. But I did have one lady, bless her heart, she had a butt blister the size of a dinner plate. I felt so sorry for her, for riding the mules. No, I think mine was just too numb. Yeah, I mean, you were young, too. Yeah, I was young, and I, you know, I guess I don't know. But it was the most, and I have, I'm like, could you, um, here's a great, uh, what's next? Yeah. Yeah, there's a great picture of Andrea. And then the next one is the picture of her book, so you all can see it. It's a great book. We'll come back to that. And then the next picture. Okay, here we go. That's not me, but it could have been. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 
there's so many stories, wonderful, wonderful stories in your book that I, if I said to you, tell me about this one, it wouldn't do it justice because there are so many backhand stories of just what it was like. So I just said, you know, I thought about it this morning and I said, you know what, Andrea, pick one. Just start telling us about the stories. Like what's the, like, like what's the first story that you would share with us today? Uh, okay, God, there's, like you said, there's so many, but, um, and I'm going to think of one of the happy, happier ones. One of my favorites, I write about a ranger, a friend of mine named Mary Littell, and she was also one of the few female rangers when I was there, and the guys didn't, she was a rock climber, really athletic young woman, and the guys, she was sort of like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. They didn't want to let her, you know, pull Santa's sleigh. And she was always fighting to be a part of that. But there's a great story in the book where she gets on a rescue on El Capitan, a real high mountain in Yosemite, real with a sheer cliff. And she ends up being the first female ranger to do a high angle rescue off of El Cap where she repels off a 3,000 foot cliff to rescue these men who were a little surprised to see a female ranger, you know, female come down and be the one to rescue them. So that, that is all a real fun story that I enjoy. And so there was a lot of people getting, I mean, I read the story about, you know, where um, a lot of people not drinking enough water, huh? But yeah, the Grand Canyon, you, and this is the thing, there are people drinking not enough water and people drinking too much water. We learned, we did such a good job of scaring everybody about dehydration that some people were guzzling gallons of water and they would come down with something called hyponatremia, which basically means low blood sodium and that will make your brain they were diluting themselves water intoxication is another word for it and it can actually kill you and they were diluting themselves so much they would have all this altered consciousness one guy bit a volunteer one guy tried to drink his flashlight so yeah, we were having to rescue people who had drank too much water as well as people who had drank too little so how many rangers were on at one, like on duty at one time? Or are you always on duty? You're sort of always on duty. You live in the park. You're always on call. They have a general alarm siren. It sounds like an air raid siren, and you would hear that while you were off duty and knew, know that you had to go back to work because something bad had happened. But uh, it was always short staff. You have different districts, and in my district I had uh, – as many as nine rangers, but there might only be four on at one time. Um, then you have other districts that would have more rangers on. But, but we were always short-staffed for the caseload. Lots of overtime, lots of long nights. And how, so you, um, you, you would just hike all over? You would just do like regular patrols? Or were you just called upon when things got bad? Both. I was the supervisor, so, you know, I also had a lot of office work and supervision, but I was also a medic, so, and a law enforcement there, too, so I, I did both. And my employees lived in cabins down in the canyon. Down, so they down were, in the canyon, like down, yeah. down. And so they were living there, and, you know, all hours of the night, there'd be people knocking at their door with, it could be anything from 
I've got a blister on my toe to, I think my uh, wife is dead. She fell off a cliff. You know, it could be anything that you would get called out for in the middle of the night. What kind of training do you have to go through to do what you did? There's uh, law enforcement training uh, at the Federal Law Enforcement Academy in Georgia. And also most, a lot of the rangers are at least EMTs. I was a park medic, which is like a paramedic. And also fire, also wildland firefighting and structural firefighting training. I so we, yeah, yeah, we wore many hats. That was part of the stress is you, when you arrived on the scene, you weren't just the cop. You were the cop, you were the firefighter, you were the medic, you were the psychiatrist for everybody there. You know, you, you had to do all those roles at once. So all, all the park rangers, are they all uh, that credentialed? No. There's several different types of rangers. There's the law enforcement protection rangers, we call them. You've got your naturalist rangers that lead the hikes and teach you about the history. And there's also biologist rangers that are dealing with the bears, for example. And you have maintenance people and administrative people, supervisors. Uh-huh. Well, you mentioned the bear, so we got to go there. The bear, we got to go there. <laughs> yeah. Talk to us about bears. Well, Yosemite, the, the bears were, you know, they were like Yogi Bear on methamphetamine or something. They're just breaking into cars, uh, just walking into people's campsites, drinking their beer, eating their watermelons. Uh, it was just out of control. Um I there they were so used to human food. I had one time where two baby bear cubs, the mother had shoved them into a dumpster. And so they were stuck in the dumpster and couldn't get out and the mother bear was outside of the dumpster. So I had to come up with a way to get the cubs out without getting ate by the mother bear with a bunch of visitors watching the whole thing. A long story short, we put a log in the dumpster, and the bears eventually, the cubs climbed out of the up the log and out of the dumpster. So there was nothing you couldn't probably do, or nothing you couldn't. I mean, you had to try everything you could with everything that went on, because there were so many things that you had to address all the time, and you never knew. You didn't. I, you know, I write about sometimes it was boring, you know, it's maybe a little minor motor vehicle accident, a speeding ticket, or, you know, you're just bored. Right. And you would sort of wish something would happen, and then something would happen, and you'd be sorry. <laughs> you know, because it would be something, you know, right. uh, horrible, maybe. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was, sometimes it was slow. So... But you, it, this was not just a summer job. I mean, this was an all-year-round job, right? Yeah, when you start, you're usually what they call seasonal, and you work uh, the busy season. Some parks are busier in the winter, like Death Valley and Everglades. And so some rangers are summer rangers, and I was a permanent ranger. You know, by later on in my career, I worked full-time. Gotcha. Uh, let's see, here's a question from, from Nature Love and C on our chat. She says, or he says, yeah. but I think it's a she. Okay. So what ranger specializes in the cultural and social history of the park, such as in the Great Smokies, where many people needed to move out and off of the land that was designated as a na national park? Yeah, that's a great question. Those 
are mostly your naturalist rangers. The Park Service calls them interpreters. They're interpreting the park's history for the visitor. And some parks have uh, historians, you know, academic historians. The Smokies might actually have one. Uh, so, you know, the, the ones in the field would be your interpreter ranger that would do a program and take you out on a hike or take you to an old cabin and tell you about that story. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I, there's so many questions that I have, but I really want to know, what was it like for you living there personally? I mean, I mean, how was that? I mean, did you get to leave? Did you just stay? Was it like, you know, did it, I mean, what was it like? I mean, you know, I lived in New York City. I lived in Manhattan, and keep, but not far from, like, Harlem at times and wherever. And people would say, what was it like? Well, it was like any other neighborhood. You know, we went to the grocery store. You know, we walked to here. We did this. It was like living anywhere. So I'm curious, what was it like living in the Grand Canyon? Yeah, I don't. There's a neighbor in the Grand Canyon specifically. There, you know, there's a grocery store and a post office. Um, but it's so remote. You know, it's very fishbowl. You know, everybody knows everybody's business. Um, you, it, it's beautiful. You know, you can walk a quarter mile. You know, be at the rim of the Grand Canyon and seeing that. But also, you know, whenever you go out to eat, you see people you know or you see the visitor. And, you know, it reminds you of your job. So it's great and beautiful, but at the same time, it's a little claustrophobic and remote. So it's like a, it's been years since I've been there, so I don't remember. But it's like a, it's like a town around the, great, around the actual. A village. A like village. A village. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's been years since I've been there. But Zion, I was telling Andrea, my husband and I went when we went on a honeymoon like 14 years ago, he wanted to go to some national parks, and I said, great, let's go hiking, but I'm, I'm petrified of heights. But I, I went anyway, and we went to Zion, and there is a one spot called Angel's Landing, which you get to, a, you hike up, and then it's stairs. But there's nothing, there's no rope, I mean, maybe it's a little metal up, right, but nothing to really hold on to, it's like yes. on the edge. Can you describe? Yeah. Can you describe that? Because <laughs> I didn't it, make it I, there. Yeah, I love that hike. Yeah. It's it's uh, you know you go up the steep and you go up the switchbacks and there's sections where you're on a knife edge, uh, ridge or spire and so you could fall this way or you could fall that way on either side, and it's what it's one of the deadliest trails in the National Park Service system. So a lot of people actually do fall off Angel's Landing and some to their death, unfortunately. And there's also been uh, alleged murders where husbands have maybe pushed their wives off of that trail. So <laughs> I love the trail. It's awesome. But the reality is it is a dangerous trail. Well, I was telling Andrea, so we, we hiked up to a certain spot. And I have to, real honestly, I am petrified of heights. I didn't used to be. I mean, when I was younger, I hiked in... Um, Switzerland on glaciers and into the Alps, but I don't know at what age and why things changed. Maybe I started wearing glasses. I started getting unsure of myself. I don't know. I just know I went from crazy to not so, I don't know what the other word is, but so we get to, we're in Zion and we decide we're going to hike up here and we hiked up and we get to a certain spot that was flat and then the, then the rest of it was to go up Angel's Landing. 
and my husband said he would go which of course i wouldn't i couldn't even move off the rock without him i just perched on this rock just there just period like a bird oh thank you i'm not gonna it's putting me back there i'm sorry to shake <laughs> and i'm perched on this rock and i said okay you go i'll be perfectly fine i couldn't even get off the rock while he was gone so he goes up and all of a sudden it starts to get pitched black dark like the most and it starts to get windy and all these things and people are coming down angels landing and they tell me nobody is moving they came down, but nobody else was moving. Of course, my husband was not one of them. And some very nice person helped me, help, held my hand and got me under cover a little further down because I couldn't go by myself. My legs wouldn't go. And I just waited and waited and hoped to God my husband came down. And that was my experience on Angel's Landing. It was petrifying. And I believe it's, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, I don't think you're alone. I, th I think that trail scares a lot of people. So we, uh, what is the most dangerous park in the country? Is there a most dangerous park or is there just most dangerous trails? To there, there's both. You know, it, it'll vary. The statistics will vary. But Grand Canyon and Yosemite are both probably in the top three uh, almost probably every year. It definitely, it's improved at Grand Canyon with PSAR. Um, but those, both those parks, you know, you got a lot of people. Um, the Grand Canyon sort of got this trap aspect of it because you go down into it. And so you're walking down. Oh, this is easy. And then you have to hike back up. Um, so both, and you see me, you've got climbers and base jumpers, all these people doing dangerous things. You could do all of that, Andrea. Could you do all of that? I'm not going to base jump. You know what base jumping is, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, you're not going to catch me doing that. No way. Uh-huh. But, but, yeah, I rock climb and hike Smart. and stuff. Oh, my goodness. Okay, everybody out there, 919-518-9773. Call us anytime. Right now is a good time. Or Computers 2K Voice on Skype. Computers 2K Voice. Just put it in. Give us a holler. Enter into our chat if you like. You could ask a question in there. We'd love to have you. Um, so what is the most dangerous place to work? You know, that's a good question. It's probably too very for a ranger. Mm -hmm. You know, a, ra a park ranger is 12 times more likely to die on the job as is a uh, agent for the FBI. So it's one of the more dangerous federal law enforcement jobs, if not the most dangerous. It, and that probably varies which park has the, you know, Grand Canyon for as crazy as that job was, uh, we didn't have a ranger, haven't had a ranger die there in quite some time. Um, so I don't know, maybe Mount Rainier has killed a lot of, you know, a lot of workers and volunteers. Maybe, I'm not sure, but that, that's what I'm guessing. What do you have to tell yourself? I mean, I know I get up every day and I say, I'm just going to love the world, you know, I'm going to be grateful for this and I'm going to be, you know, open to this and I'm going to do my best, whatever, the here. And what do you have to tell yourself every day? Well, I'm more like that now. I'm older than when I was a park ranger, more mature. But back then, you know, you don't have time to think about it. You, you know, you're, you're competing with your peers. You want to, you know, want to you know, be the one that was so brave and was a hero and 
then when you're not thinking that, you're just maybe a little cynical and, oh gosh, another, you know, I got to go save another person that did something stupid. Uh, so you sort of go back and forth between those two things, I think. And a lot of good teamwork, I would imagine. The com camaraderie was wonderful. Um, that's probably one of the things I miss the most about that job. Yeah, I would imagine, um, I mean, they're, you're like your lifeline. Yeah, and you're sharing real intense experiences with people, you know, that that can relate to your experience. So it makes you bond. And, of course, I eventually married a park ranger that I worked with. So, you know, a lot of handsome, studly guys I was working with. So that was nice, too. Yeah, I would imagine. Woof. Yeah. And, and you yeah. have to be in really good shape. I mean, what did you do? stay in shape I mean was your job just enough or did you have to watch what you eat and all that kind of stuff you know that was the beauty of it you could probably eat as much as you wanted and your job was definitely enough although most rangers would work out a little bit you know jog or lift weights you know to maintain a, a certain level of fitness when they're not on patrol what was the most intense experience you had Well, um, probably something that happened at Yosemite where I was called to uh, someone had fallen off the cliff and I wanted to be the hero. And so I was running very fast up the trail. And when I arrived, it, the person unfortunately had died and I knew her. She was a nurse at the Yosemite clinic and I had to shut down my emotions and, and take care of what you know take care of getting her body removed from the area but that was you know pretty intense that's pretty intense you had to shut down your emotions a lot just to make it through i would think yeah now that i'm more older more mature you know i sort of that's part of the problem i think is you know you're you don't have time to deal with things and sort of sit and contemplate so you're just going from intense incident to intense incident to an intense incident and then it adds up and if you're you're not setting boundaries and taking the time off you need, it'll have an impact on you. It certainly did on me. So what was, do you mind sharing about that impact? I, I was starting to get, you know, I, I didn't have PTSD, but I had, I was just getting cumulative stress from all the stuff I was dealing with. I wasn't sleeping good at night. I was getting cynical, irritable. I tell a story in the book where, you know, I'm real snappy with someone on the phone when they call me to, to do something. And, I, and my peers were that way. I write about one of my peers. He was throwing flashlights and another, two rangers got in a fight in the jail. One punched the other and knocked them out. So, you know, I certainly wasn't alone in that stress, you know, finding an outlet. There was drinking and partying, you know, you know so, yeah, there was, we were... Um, dealing with it in different ways. You know, my brother um, was an emergency room doc for many years, and and everybody I've ever known who has done that had to have been, you know, uh, loved the adrenaline rush because it was a constant thing in the emergency room. But yours is beats the band, I, I believe. Far more adrenaline in, in what you did. It, well, maybe more constant adrenaline, but just add that you're 
you're maybe you're not an emergency room doctor you're just a paramedic and you're hanging off a cliff on El Capitan with someone with a serious head injury and there's a lightning storm so you can't fly him out so you may have to do uh, some you know you may be talking to an ER doc on the radio who's telling you oh we're gonna have to drill holes in this guy's head to release the pressure so I don't know that's a pretty big adrenaline rush if you ask me so like now, and I want to ask you about your next book, because that's your other book about folklore. I think that The Haunted Hikes, you said. I yeah. Love, I, 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 I really want to hear about that. But I want to know, like, your life now, do you, are you, do you miss any of that adrenaline, or you just, like, you go for the quiet, the, the you know, the, you know, just the real quiet, meditative, sedentary, how is it now for you? I'm definitely not sedentary, but I don't miss adrenaline rushes too much. I miss the camaraderie a little bit, but I'm a nurse now, and and so I still have that um, caregiving, and there's still, you know, a patient might get seriously ill on me, and I have to react appropriately. So I still have that um, aspect to my life, and I still hike a lot and, and do adventures and climb mountains, but, but it's at a different pace than back then it's definitely a slower pace more definitely more meditative um. right well we need you know we need people like you you know we need we need all of us and i often will say that we all make up for the whole i mean we you know for the whole beingness of the the earth the planet the, the country and we need people like andrea who have this extraordinary um love for 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 the I mean what the people and taking and helping people and but also what is your passion for the for the parks I mean how do you feel about these these national parks that we that we are so privy to and so blessed to have I mean what is your thinking about that to me they're you know they're churches and temples so they're sacred and you know, they're real deserving of respect. Um, that's part of a ranger almost gets to be um, too, too elitist maybe in their view of that. And so visitors come and they're tossing beer cans or partying too much or something and or, you know, throwing trash. And it really upsets that sense of, you know, this is our church. You know, you don't go to the bathroom behind the pew in the church, you know, so we get we get a little self-righteous about the parks. It's a very powerful, profound, protective feeling rangers have over the national parks. I, wow. I mean, it is. I mean, they're just, and they're all so different. <clears throat> I think that's something so extraordinary that you can go from one to the other and they're all so different. And they, they look different. The culture is different. I mean, on the outside, maybe the culture behind the scenes your culture is similar, but everyone that I've been to, there's such a there's an there's an energy about it, but the, it seems so different. And we are so blessed to have them, and they are so sacred. I mean, I know that when I went to Escalante, I think um, didn't Clinton had just made that? A, uh, what what did he? How did he identify Escalante? I'm trying to remember. It was he had given it some kind of seal, some kind of of identification. Do you do you know what I'm talking about? No, I'm not recalling okay. that. But 
but I, you're certainly right. Your instincts are good. The natural part, each one has their own personality. Mm-hmm. You know, some are magnificent in your face with their beauty. Some are more subtle. You, know, you have to really look at the little teeny tiny wildflower, for example. They, they definitely, they're, to me, they're characters. Okay. They all have their own personality. How do, we, how do we identify something so extraordinary like that? How do we, how do we find them? How do we make them into a national park, and how do we identify them as a national park? Well, there's a long history of that. I think, you know, more recently, there are areas that are already owned by a government entity, either a state or the BLM, Bureau of Land Management or Forest Service, and the powers to be just decide that that we need to give a higher level of protection and designate it a, a national park area. There's some controversy to that because the National Park, I'm sure you're familiar, is hurting financially. And so adding more units to the system taxes the resources of the agency. So some people believe maybe enough is enough. Let's focus on the more, you know, the more historic, pristine areas. Um, You know, I don't know the answer to that question, but that is one of the controversies. Well, I know that I've had friends who have moved, let's say, to uh, New Mexico, on, onto National Preserve, land that, that's a National Preserve, and their homes, they're developed, but they, they have to be developed in such a way that they don't disrupt the preserve. You know, so maybe that's, I just find it fascinating, and I just think that we, we don't, and people don't take enough advantage of them, I don't think, I guess. I mean, there's so many places to see and experience that, you know, maybe if we, maybe if we saw them more, we'd take more, you know, pride in them. Wanna, yeah, I think so, but, you know, I think you can get that same feeling, you know, in your own backyard, in your own garden or your own neighborhood park. Um, you know, there's, you can still get that connection with the natural world just walking down your street, I think. It's very true. I just came, when I was coming into uh, the studio, which is behind Amnon's office, there's flowers all over the place, and it's like an oasis. And I was thinking about my dear friend, Debbie, who might be, I think she's on the chat. And I was mentioning <clears throat> to Amnon's wife as I was coming in that it reminds me of Debbie, who is a dear friend, whose house also has beautiful orchards and flowers and, you know, and just beautiful, like a, like a sacred space. You know, so you're right. We can create those in those places anywhere, for the most part. Um, I want to show. Uh, can you show the slide of Andrea's book again? I I love this book, and when Chris uh, gave it to me after she read it, Chris is our co-producer. She said, "Oh my God, you're gonna love this book." And I'm like, "Really? I mean, it's uh, it's about rangers. Am I really, you know, am I really gonna love this book?" I have to tell you that you, I really love this book, and I highly recommend that you go read it. It's, it's extraordinary, the stories, it's, um, you get a, a, more than a glimpse into what, what we're talking about and, and what goes on in, in our parks and how our parks are, and I really think you'll enjoy it, and it's a great story. It's, it's more than, it's not just your everyday nonfiction. It's really beautiful, so I highly recommend that you read it. Um, talk to us some about uh, your other book, because I find that also extremely fascinating. The one 
haunted trails. Yeah, haunted hikes. Hikes. That I'm was, sorry. Yeah, yeah, that was so fun to write and research for me. I had fun with it. Um, you know, I was really. In, I love the X Files. Remember that TV show? Yeah. And so I just love that show. And so I was kind of inspired by that. Although all the stories in Haunted Hikes are true. You know, there might be legend, but it's a true legend that actually exists. And so I wanted to write, because as a ranger, you go to a campfire with other rangers, and maybe you're having some, sharing some whiskey, and people start telling stories of things they had seen or heard in the park that they couldn't understand, uh, explain. And so I knew there was all these supernatural elements of stories that weren't being documented and that the visitors knew nothing about. And so I decided to just attack that and just find all these stories and put them down to paper. And I told them truthfully, but did it with a real kind of tongue-in-cheek sense of humor as well. I also wrote about unsolved cases, you know, murders in parks that hadn't been solved yet. Um, so I, I loved writing that book. That was just fun. So give us, give us a story. Tell us a story about one of those particular hikes. One of those stories you heard. Uh, Yosemite is a great park for that. The Native Americans that did not live in the park warned the white, the first whites that came to the area, warned them that Yosemite Valley was the valley of death and evil spirits. So very superstitious about Yosemite Valley. And there's a fall, waterfall that we call uh, Bridalveil Falls. The local tribes called it Pahono Falls, and that Pahono means evil wind. And they had stories of a maiden that was collecting berries near the top, and she became so entranced with the beauty that she just, like hypnotized, just walked. She's at the top of the fall, and she just walked to the edge and allowed the water to rush her over the edge to her death. And... The the kind of creepy thing about that is every year they've got signs up warning people don't bury you know don't get so close to the edge of the waterfall and they still do it it's it's almost like they're hematized and they are washed over the fall and and unfortunately most of them die. People don't listen, I guess. Well, I know they don't on some level, but wow. So that so that folklore story just continues. Yes. It becomes real. And that's what I was seeing. You know, these, you know, it's almost, I wonder if the, to the Native Americans it was like a safety sign to tell this ghost story about this evil spirit that might push you off a waterfall. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a way to, maybe that's what the Park Service needs to do, put stories up about Pahono at the top so people, it'll stick in their mind more maybe. Yeah. I remember, and I don't know if it was in Yellowstone or Yosemite, but I remember a place called Mirror Lake. Yes. Where is that? That's in Yosemite Valley. Yosemite. And there's a story in Haunted Hikes about Mirror Le- Lake. Oh, where could you young tell woman... me, please? Because I was yeah. there. Yeah, a young yeah. woman was stabbed on the trail to Mirror Lake in the 80s, and they never solved it. It was, and there's, you know, there's a lot of people there. It's not oh, a remote yeah. area. It's so, like, within a matter of a minute or less, between people seeing her alive and then seeing her dead. Someone stabbed her and got away. Still unsolved to this day. Yeah, I have a, a friend who's been on the show before who's a similar thing happened in Virginia at a uh, daughter came out of rafting and unsolved mystery. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so are there any other stories 
whether they're un unsolved crimes or any of the other um, hiking folklore stories that you can share? Oh yeah, there there are tons of them. Um, Try to think one one of my favorite ghosts. You know, some of the funny, silly ones is there was a sex starved starved a female Sasquatch in Olympic National Park that was apparently accosting male campers, and um, there is oh, there's so many. Um, let's see, pick a park. Pick a park. Oh, yeah, oh, pick, pick a park. See if I can come up with some. Oh, pick a park. Um, Are you talking about Appalachian Trail, right? There's, oh, yeah, yeah. Talk about because I went on there, too. There's a place called Scare Rock, and this this rock on the trail. This Where is, is it? Where is it, Andrea? What part of the... Virginia, near the Blue Ridge Parkway. Okay, okay. And that rock, uh, there was a... This goes way back. I looked up the in what story from long, long ago in oral histories, and there was a slave owner that lived near this, this scare rock, and he was cruel, cruel man. And one day he rode by that rock, and this big, weird creature came out from behind the rock, and he was so spooked. He and his horse, you know, galloped all the way back to his house, and he told somebody that he'd seen this scary thing at this rock. The next day, they went to wake him up, and he was dead. So now they call that rock Scare Rock. Wow. What great stories. Yeah. What great stories. Um, Chris is asking for you to tell us the story about the sea turtles at Cape Hatteras. Oh, yeah, I get asked that a lot. That, that was a young ranger at Cape Hatteras, and it was my first time to be a ranger. And, you know, I was young. I wasn't sure if this is what I was going to do or not. And they made me work the early shift. So I had to get up at 5 in the morning, which when you're young, you're like, really? And I would get up in the morning, and I was told to look for tracks every morning on the beach. And... So one day I saw the tracks uh, of uh, big tracks coming up, and then it's where a turtle had laid her nest. And then I'm supposed to find the nest, and then we would, if it was below high tide, or we would move it to a safer location. And the eggs are like little ping pong balls, really cute. So then I, I it was about two months later. I would be driving by, and I discovered that one of these nests had hatched. And the, all the little baby sea turtles were coming out of the nest. And I was so, it was just so touched me and moved me. And I picked up one and held it in my hand. And I knew then that this was my calling, that I, I would risk my life to protect these turtles. See, so it makes me tear up right now just talking oh about gosh. it. It was a very profound time for me. Wow. That's where I committed to the job. So to protect what? The, all the the nature and the wildlife therein, that's the Organic Act and the National Park Service. And so there's also a saying, a uh, uh, motto that park rangers have, and it's protect the park from the people, the people from the park, and the people from themselves. So you're trying to protect all those things at once, and sometimes that's they're in conflict with each other. That is one heck of a juggling act it was it was it, it really it still is obviously for the rangers working today so who do you have the most i don't even know if this is a fair question but who do you feel the most allegiance to the park or the people 
I think at first it might have been the part to some degree, but later on it, you know, especially at Grand Canyon, I, I, you know, people were really uh, dying on me and me and my peers and my uh, employees. And so I began to kind of have a love-hate relationship with the park where I was afraid of it as much as I loved it. So, yeah, it was a kind of a bizarre uh, position to be in. I mean, these parks talk, don't they? I mean, they, they, they communicate. Yeah, they do. You know, sometimes I would feel like certain areas of the park uh, held grudges. You know, if you didn't act respectfully while you were traveling there, you put yourself at risk of having an accident. Amazing. Um, I had a... So you're married now, right? And your husband, is he yes. still doing what he was doing before? He's something similar. He's a special agent, uh, which is like a detective for the Forest Service, which is um, different than the National Park Service, but has a similar mission, you know, where they're protecting national forests. He's got a big job, too. There's a lot to protect. Yeah, and the and parks experience this too. You know, they have people growing illegal marijuana farms in the forest. Um, so that's kind of a dangerous aspect of their job dealing with that. Fires, arsonists, people setting fires. And that that kind of thing just leaves me speechless. You know, I mean, here you have this most magnificent thing, and people just. You know, this is this might seem incidental, but you know, we work at a, at a health club, and there's a sign that says, "Nobody in the health in the hot tub, tw twelve and under." It's reserved. Right. And yet, I turn around and I'm seeing little kids in the hot tub, and I'm like, "Why are you doing that?" I can't get over the fact that people put their little kids in a hot tub, at at ba like babies, in a yeah. hot tub. I don't get it. Anyway. Yeah. Well, you can relate to a ranger at Grand Canyon seeing someone hike in with high heels and flip-flops and, you know, they've had people rolling their suitcases down the trail. Um, just really silly stuff, carrying coolers down the trail. Yeah, for just a little while. Yeah. And then all of a sudden that trail gets you and you think, oh, exactly. what's the first thing that's going to go? The heels. The cooler. Yeah, exactly. It ain't gonna last. Right. Uh, what's your uh, so, Chris? Uh, Debbie is asking. This is interesting. How do you approach dangerous people today? Like, when, if you get a sense of somebody dangerous, how do you approach today them? versus back then yeah. when I was carrying a gun? Yeah. Well, I, first of all, I don't think I encountered that many dangerous people. Yeah, you know, we talked earlier. I hiked that entire Appalachian Trail. And people by myself and people often ask me, well, were you afraid of people? Did you carry a gun? And, and I thought it was perfectly safe. I think also what happens is because I used to be law enforcement, my presence just sort of puts out this, I don't know, I wouldn't mess with her kind of thing. How so big I, are you? How big are you? I'm not that big. I'm 5'7", uh -huh. 132 pounds, not that big. But, yeah, I just don't really feel like I encounter that many dangerous people but I you know I, I one time I was at, uh, camping in Mexico with a friend and we there were some guys camping nearby and we were sleeping in the back of my pickup truck and it was dark and this 
drunk guy stumbled into our camp. And I was out of the truck like a German shepherd at him. Just, you do not do this. Get, get back to your campsite, yelling at him. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa I'm sorry. He backed up. So I, he probably wasn't dangerous, but I did not like his behavior. So I was just in his face right away. So do you have an element of being fearless? I think I'm realistic, yes. but probably, you know, yeah, there's probably a comp. I think I'm confident. I'm confident that I'll be able to handle a situation. I think I'm, I think that's a better word than fearless. And where do you get that confidence from? Like, what? What? what how are you confident? Well, now at this age, I think you know I've just got a whole long all these experiences, you know, to give me that confidence. So I think it comes from pushing your limits a little bit, and so, you know. Not being afraid to, you know, and then you get more confident each little step forward. And so how do you define breaking free? Uh, well, yeah, I think you've you come right to a good segue there. I think it's going beyond crossing your fear barrier, walking past that line of where you start to feel a little afraid. Walk past that, whether it's quitting your job and doing something different or uh, repelling off a rope to save somebody, you know, stepping past that point where you were afraid. Because I would imagine, I mean, you were afraid. Every time I, I mean, there are a lot of times that I come here and I'm, I'm a little afraid. You know, I'm going to be live. I'm going to be talking to somebody maybe I don't know. I'm a little afraid every, you know. I mean, imagine you had a lot of fear that you were able to, go over that barrier in your job on a regular basis. Yeah, and I still do now. You know, I'm a nurse now, and when people are sick, there's something a little scary about that. You know, am I going to be able to take care of them right? Am I going to make a mistake? Are they going to, am I going to be sensitive? Are they going to feel cared for by me, you know, by my tone and my, what words I choose to say? So... Yeah, even being a nurse is a little scary, I think. But you have experience breaking free on a, on a fairly regular basis. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I yeah. think I do. So I, I don't think I really have a problem doing it. I just do it. You know, I kind of focus on somebody's got to take care of this person. It doesn't matter whether I'm afraid or not. You know, this person needs me. So I'm going to do it. Right. So you are personal mission is in the forefront of that fear and that helps you get through it. Yeah, I think that's a great conclusion. Yeah. The it's like when I was a ranger, protect the park, protect the people, and protect the people from each other. It's, that was so um motivating for me to go beyond my fear. Yeah. Big job. Big job. Well, we're almost almost out of time. But before, don't go yet. Don't go anywhere yet. I'm not, could you put up the, uh, there we go. Okay, we saw that, right? Next one. Okay. I have a book on my website about leadership skills. Please go to my website, MarilynShannon.com, if you want to um, break free. That's one way uh, to access your leadership. And you can go to MarilynShannon.com and find that. The next thing is, um, I use a platform, some of the work that I do, called Zoom, 
it's a great platform if you go to my website you'll see it if you do any kind of meetings workshops any kind of trainings at all it's a great way to do them I highly recommend it uh, it's wor very worthwhile and the next one and this is my listening manifesto which is is how you break free by listening to yourself and taking listening to multiple levels so it's on my website it's free go get it it's like um, a personal way to find your independence because once you turn on that listening you can break free you can cross over those barriers you can listen to yourself and other people and you know how to perform in different situations so that's there and that's all I have to share but I wanted Andrea to take oh that's my favorite things yes yes thanks I forgot about that I have a place on my website for my favorite things books I've read or books somebody else told me about you know I uh, products from other people artwork whatever it is if you have it let me know you can write to Marilyn Shannon dot com um, and I will um, put it up so Marilyn at Marilyn Shannon dot com Andrea could you in our final moments kind of sum up for us um, whatever you whatever wisdom you want to leave with us today it's all yours yeah I think I would say you know you you could do it don't let fear uh, inhibit you uh, it's okay to feel it feel the fear and contemplate it it's a useful emotion keeps you safe um, but don't let it get the best of you and if you were going to recommend for, for our um, audience a park that maybe for people who haven't been to a park yet which park would you recommend oh my gosh that is that you that that's the kind of question to drive a park ranger crazy they're <laughs> so great. that's why it's the last question yeah, so I'll say Blue Ridge Parkway on the East Coast and on the West Coast I'm going to give you a kind of a little one people don't know about Oregon caves in Oregon Southwest Oregon. Uh, yeah, the Blue Ridge is fabulous. Really. Yeah, we get to enjoy. Um, we go up there a lot. We go up to like Banner Elk and off the Blue Ridge and all those kinds of places. I love and, it. I love it there. I love yeah, it back there. Great hiking, great visuals, just magnificent uh, things to see. And Oregon, I haven't been to, so that might be on my list next. Fabulous. And, and any other words about. Um, just park rangers in general. Anything that you want to share with us in closing? Oh, that they're they're interesting. You know, they're not just Boy Scouts. You know, with that smoky bear hat, they have very interesting personalities and and have very interesting experiences. So, so they're more complicated than you might think. Mm. And if anyone out there has an opportunity to bump into one, you might hear some great stories. So you might want to take a few minutes and uh, chat a bit. Because I guarantee you're going to hear some things that they're they're a wealth of knowledge and they're holding they're a big container for a lot of things. So Andrea, thank you so very much for joining us today. It has been really exciting, and I could go on and on and on. There's so much to learn and, and hear, and I and your writing is extraordinary. So thank you for that because it made it so much easier to read about these things. So I really appreciate it. So you've been a great guest, and for everybody out there, I want to thank you so much. Final word, Andrea. Uh, thanks for having me. Everybody have a great summer. Terrific. Thank you, everyone. Nice to see you here. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
are tuned to the Nissan Communications Network. Our weekly lineup of call-in programs includes Computers 2K Now with Amnon Nissan, Health In with Debbie Brooke, Breaking Free with Marilyn Shannon, Lessons of Vietnam with NCVBI members, The Tanya Love Show, Your Healthy Pet with Gisela DiCarlo. And if you tuned in too late, you can always watch each program in its entirety or download an MP3 audio file of it at www.nissancommunications.com. Sponsored by Atomos.com, makers of quality video recorders and converters for professionals. CarolinaApparel.com and DeltaForce.net.